0: I hope you have your Bible with you, and if you do, I would ask you to open it this morning to 1 Thessalonians, the letter of 1 Thessalonians, the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. He wrote two of them. We're going to, uh, last week we ended up, or we finished up a study of the book of Zephaniah in the Old Testament. We're going to jump back and begin, jump right in this morning without any delays into a New Testament letter of 1 Thessalonians. Um, there are a couple of reasons why I think uh, we're coming to this letter, but I think they'll maybe just, I'll let those unfold as we get through uh, the teaching of this. This morning is one of those uh, times when when we're going to spend a lot of time in background and a lot of time in, in, in some information that, uh, I don't know, I hope it to you it's not boring. I hope it's not a, 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 a something that's like, well, let's just get in and read the Word of God. I hope it's something that will help us understand the letter better, will give us some clues or some things to pay attention to. And my goal is to simply introduce us to uh, this letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and uh, to help highlight what I think are going to be some themes that we're going to run into and uh, uh, make sure that we're understanding some things as we go through. As a reminder to you, again, this is always true. And if you have been here at the church for a long time, you know these things. Uh, But as a reminder to you, if you're visiting or you just... I don't know, forgot about it. Um, I usually try to do, when we're doing these kinds of uh, exegetical studies on the scriptures, I try to give us a handout on the backside of the bulletin. If it helps you, you can uh, track along there. You can jot down notes. It is my intention. I don't always get this done, but it's my intention to every verse that I have sort of known ahead of time that I'm going to read or share to put that reference down. I do that. Uh, I don't know if you know why I do that. I do that so you can keep track of sort of where the sermon's going. I also put them on the screen up here typically, but I really do that so that as you are chewing through the stuff that you hear, if there's something that you aren't sure about or something you want to think more about, that you take time uh, as the week goes on this next week to go back and you have the handout and you know the verses that I was thinking of and that I sort of came down to as I studied this text and you can go back and reread them. I know it's, uh, if you're like me, maybe you're not like me, but if you're like me, I know it's pretty easy that when you hear something in a sermon of some kind, it may trigger your brain and you may start thinking down this line of thinking and you may stop listening to what's going on in front of you. And so, uh, and that's okay. Uh, I trust the Holy Spirit completely. In fact, it's one of the things I trust more than, I mean, it is the thing I trust more than anything. I've come to realize that there are lots of times when I think I have things well put together. And then as I'm talking, I think of something different. And I realize the Holy Spirit has a way of correcting me. I also know that the Holy Spirit is often doing things in your minds and hearts and heads uh, while I'm talking. And that's okay. Uh, You might think I might get frustrated because you're not paying attention. And if you're thinking about what you're going to do this next week or what happened last week or the score of some game or of some other thing that's intriguing your mind at that moment, I would probably take some exception to that. But if you're allowing the Holy Spirit to lead your thoughts according to the scriptures, I have no problems with that. For I know that he is far more able to meet you and your need this morning than I am. So, may the Holy Spirit speak to us. This morning, I, we're really just gonna cover verse one, and so I'm going to uh, just kinda walk through it. I'm not even gonna read it ahead of time because we're gonna, really gonna, uh, as a way of main points, we're just gonna walk through every part of the text. Verse one is where we're gonna be at, so I'm just gonna jump in. This is how Paul starts his letter, but with a way of greeting, with a way of, 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 of greeting them and telling them who he is and why he's writing in some, te- in some uh, form or fashion. So he writes Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and we're going to stop there before we go on because he introduced the three people. Now, this letter is really actually from Paul. Make no mistake, the letter's from Paul, but he includes his two closest associates in his greeting because they're well known to these people. I'm gonna dig into some background here, but just sort of, uh, sort of off the top of the uh, the, the the page here, Paul Sylvanus. And Timothy. Paul, of course, we're well acquainted with, right? Paul is the man whom much of the New Testament is due to. He wrote these letters and we had them preserved for us today. We call them scripture. We call them the instruction for the New Testament church on how to establish the gospel, how to establish churches, how to live in the gospel, how to live as churches, and and what what to sort of point our life towards. We're also pretty familiar with Timothy because uh, Paul wrote some specific letters to the person Timothy, so we know who that is. It's that middle name that we may not be super familiar with, Silvanus. Silvanus in the Greek is kind of weird. I'm not sure why it got a V in the English language, because in the Greek, the word Silvanus is siluanos. Siluanos. And that's actually how Paul refers to his helper almost all the way through in all of his letters. However, when you read about this guy in the book of Acts, for example, which is written by Luke, he often uses the contracted form of that name Siloanus and calls him Silas, or as we in English say, Silas. So really what he's saying is Paul, and we would know from the book of Acts, Silas and Timothy. These were his helpers. You're going to read about this. If you read through the book of Acts, you're going to read about the fact that Paul took these helpers with him, Silas being a chief one among them. He's introduced in the book of Acts. It's the same guy that we're talking about. Now, I thought if, if you're like me, you like things like maps. If you're not like me, you get bored by things like maps. But I think it's good to kind of be established. And I don't know how well you can read this because I know it's like up here. It's pretty big on the computer screen, but it's not that. And it's pretty big here as well, but you're sitting way back there. What I have up here is really Paul's second missionary journey because it provides the, the background that we need for the letter to the Thessalonians. I'm going to flip back to the book of Acts And just kind of walk through. I will read a text from Acts here in a little bit, so if you want to flip back, you can as well, I guess. Acts chapter 15 is where I'm going to start. Paul has made his first journey already. He's established churches in Asia Minor. He took this man named Barnabas with him. And as they walked through those places, they established churches. They came back, and he gave an update to the people in Jerusalem. The church leaders, in fact, were residing in Jerusalem. Much much to our surprise, I suppose, we might think that Paul was, in fact, a a a church leader. And he was to some degree, but he really wasn't. Because the church was established in Jerusalem. And the leaders of the church in Jerusalem were not Paul. Paul was not from there. In fact, when he first came there after he was saved, they actually, he actually didn't interact with them very much. He went off to Antioch. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting backwards in my story. I want to go forwards, not backwards. But in Jerusalem, as he reported what had happened, we began to see a problem arise because we began to see that there was all these Gentile believers now. What had started as a bunch of Jewish people receiving their Jewish Messiah and beginning to live out their Jewish faith in the Messiah was now being, I mean, you might say it was being taken over by these Gentile believers. Most of the places, now there were of course Jewish converts, but most of the places where Paul went in Asia Minor, he was establishing not just Jewish believers in Jesus, but Gentile believers in Jesus. Which meant that now we have some problems because the Gentile believers weren't always behaving or doing the things just like the Jewish ones. So we had what's called in in chapter 15 of the book of Acts, we call it anyway, the Jerusalem Council. And they came up with how they should handle this. It's a fantastic, it's not the point of the message this morning so I can't go into it, but it's a fantastic working of the Holy Spirit among the leadership of the church and recognizing that perhaps, and this is key, for all leaders of churches everywhere, of which I'm, you know, one that's standing in front of you, so maybe it's key for me, but I think it's good for you to hear it. They realized that perhaps we don't have everything quite right. Perhaps we haven't understood everything perfectly. And so under the leaderships of the Holy Spirit, under the Holy Spirit's leadership is how I was going to say that, they've drafted a letter that said, we welcome you Gentile believers, but we ask you of you just a couple of things. A lot of them had to do with idol worship. And they sent this letter out. I'm, I'm doing a very high version of this. We actually, I talked through the book of Acts a number of years ago. So if you were here then, we went into some details. But Paul and Barnabas now go back up through the churches there in, in Palestine, back to Antioch. They're sharing this letter. And Paul says, hey, why don't we take this letter that's so encouraging to all the Gentile believers and go through to all the churches we established and encourage them with this letter? This is the point, place in Acts chapter 15 where we read that there was a dispute among Paul and Barnabas. In fact, it uses the word a sharp dispute because Barnabas wanted to take this young man named Mark along, John Mark along, and Paul said, No way, he abandoned us last time. We were on our way, we didn't get very far, and he said, I'm out, and I don't want to take him again. And Barnabas said, No, he's changed. I don't actually know what the, all the dialogue was, so I'm not going to tell you all that stuff. But there was enough of a disagreement that they split ways. This is how Silas comes in the picture, by the way, because we read that Barnabas, I don't know how well you can see, I think there's a pointer on here. Is this the pointer? They're they're, they're here in Antioch, and there's this disagreement, and this is actually where you see where Barnabas takes John Mark, and they go to Cyprus, which, by the way, is the first place they went on the first missionary journey, so he's just going to make the exact same route. Paul says, I'm going to take this guy named Silas, and we're going to go backwards along that route. And he goes through Asia Minor, they're strengthening churches. Here somewhere in Lystra, let's see, there's a Lystra right there. Lystra, they find this young man named Timothy, who I think was probably a convert the first time Paul came through, but now has grown quite a bit and is showing a lot of promise as a church leader. And Paul says, we're taking this guy along. And so they move on. And if you read the book of Acts in chapter 16, they move up through here. They try to go up into Bithynia up here. And the Holy Spirit doesn't allow them. I would have loved to have been there on site to see how those things worked out. Because it's so clear that the Holy Spirit doesn't allow them. And I often marvel at those kind of things. They hear the Macedonian call. They jump across the water into what is modern-day Greece, and they come to this town called Philippi. This is Acts chapter 16. You know the story. They plant a church. Uh, they, he casts out a demon out of a slave girl. And they, her owners realize that their way of making money is, is gone. And so they throw them into jail. And they've been beaten. And they do what all of us do. When after we've been beaten and thrown into jail unjustly, they sit there and they sing hymns to God all night. And they pray to... Wait, why are you laughing? That's not what you all do when that happens? Yeah, we probably shouldn't laugh, right? because it's not true, but that is actually exactly what they did, and God breaks them free, and the Philippian jailer thinks they probably all escaped, and he said, and they say, don't worry, we're all still here, and he comes to faith, and after they've been released, they go on. I'm going to read now in chapter 17 of the book of Acts, starting in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on, the th- and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. There's these three men here, that opening this letter, and here they are. They're teaching from the Scriptures. Now, there's Scriptures are not the New Testament. You know that, right? Because they don't exist yet. Those are scriptures of the Old Testament. And he's explaining to them how Jesus the Christ must suffer, must rise from the dead, and in fact that Jesus is the Christ. In verse 4, we, we read that some of them were persuaded and joined, excuse me, Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Excuse me again. But the Jews were jealous and ta- taking some wicked men from the, of the rabble I just get that right. Let me just read again, because I don't like when I stumble over the words of Scripture. Verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Presumably, they were staying at Jason's house. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also and Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. I can't help but stop for a moment. It's not the point of the text. But brothers and sisters, do you not ache and long to have people say those kind of things about us? These people turned the world upside down. And what he actually charged them, did you notice, is actually completely true, right? They're saying there's another king, not Caesar. To which all believers say, yes and amen, his name is Jesus. We serve him. Verse 8, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. In verse 10, we read these words. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, this all happened in this little city right up there in the far corner, if you can see it, way up there, Thessalonica. They were coming through here. They moved to Berea right then. And if you keep reading from the book of Acts, you realize that things just kind of moved on. Now, there is some debate how long Paul was actually in Thessalonica, We know at the least he was there three weeks, because it pretty specifically says three Sundays he shared in the synagogue. Some scholars say he was probably there a bit longer than that, but we don't know for sure. The only thing I can tell you is he was for sure there for three weeks. The gospel was planted, and then an uprising came. And immediately, it says, when that stuff happened, they sent Paul on his way. They sent Silas on his way. They sent Timothy on their way. They came to Berea. If you continue reading the book of Acts, you see that actually what happened as they went through Berea, Paul said... I'm going to keep heading down south as it is. I'm going to head to this town called Athens, but I want you to stay here. Now, putting together what we're going to read in the letter to the Thessalonians here over the next several weeks here, putting together, we know that not only did Paul actually tell Silas and Timothy to stay there in Berea, but notice whose name hasn't been mentioned in Acts. Timothy. And what really happened, actually, is he sent Timothy all the way on back into Thessalonica because he said... Here's a church that barely got its feet under itself. Here's a church that was just planted. The gospel was just shared. They were just starting to come to faith, and we had to leave. And I'm not sure. I don't know how that's going to work out. If you keep reading in Acts, you see that Paul went down to Athens. He went down to Corinth. In Acts chapter 18, he went to Corinth. And it says then very clearly that while he was in Corinth, Silas and Timothy then rejoined him from Macedonia. They came back down out of the north here and came down here where Corinth is at in Achaia. Now, most people say that at that point, what we're going to read in a couple of weeks here in 1 Thessalonians, is at that point, Timothy gave his update as to how the church in Thessalonica was doing. And at that point, Paul wrote this letter back to them. Now, If we follow that kind of timeline, this is not hugely important stuff, but I think there's some things that we want to know as we go through this. If that's true, that puts the dating of the writing of this letter somewhere around AD 50 or 51. AD 50 or 51. Now, I'm not expecting all of us to know this. And in fact, I don't know how much I would have known this without digging into it a bit. But if you pay attention, then this would be the first letter that Paul wrote. I know it's tucked away in like the middle of the New Testament kind of, but it's the first letter that Paul actually wrote. And that's important because of some of the things that Paul is going to talk about. In this letter, we find much more interest by Paul in how to establish churches, in proclaiming the gospel and how to get them planted. So if we are interested in establishing new communities or new groups of faith, I think we should pay attention to the the Thessalonian letters because that's Paul's concern. Here's a fledgling church, that has barely gotten its feet under itself and they need to know some things. To be honest, if you're paying attention and you care about these things, this was actually the first letter or the first book of the New Testament that was written at all. This was written before the Gospels. This was written before Peter's letters. This is, of course, written before John and the Revelation. This is the first Letter of the, or the first book of the New Testament, the earliest writing of the New Testament. I would tell you, you might be able to make the case that, except for that letter from the Jewish leaders in the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, that is preserved in Acts chapter 15 for us, I would tell you that this might actually be the earliest Christian writing that's preserved for us post Jesus. Now, why I say that is simply to say it helps us understand why Paul does some things the way he does. For example, I'll just throw one example out there. In almost every other letter that Paul writes, he identifies himself more. He says, Paul, and then what usually comes does anybody know what usually comes after that? Somebody said it. Paul the apostle. Now, why did he not say that here? I suggest to you it's probably because all the pressure against him trying to, by people trying to claim that he's not an apostle hasn't actually happened yet. That opposition hasn't been there yet. So he just says, you know who I am. I was just there not too long ago. I was there. I'm Paul, and my workers were there, Silas or Silvanus and Timothy. Now pay attention to this next line too, because he says, as he opens it, he says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, keep in mind, this, it might be the first time these kind of sentences are written down on paper. It's important. I don't know about you, but I've always thought that the word church was a, how do I say this, was a church word. That seems like, duh. But it's like one of those words that's like reserved for church. But actually, as I studied for this week, I realized that the word church, the Greek word ekklesia, actually existed and meant something before it meant church like we know church. Ecclesia was a, a group that were, of people that were called out or called together or assembled together. It's an assembly of people. So church, first of all, I think we already know this. Hopefully you've heard this from church before, across pulpits before. But the word church used in the New Testament is not referring to a building. It's referring to a people. But it also existed. It existed for secular purposes. So they would have church or ecclesia. They would have an ecclesia of business people, for example, that shared common interests and were, were assembled together for some reason. They would actually have a church or ecclesia for political reasons, for people that were drawn together for political reasons. So this word was not a word that's unfamiliar. It's not like Paul wrote to them and they were like, what is this new word he's using to call us? But what he is doing is really, really important. Because he's telling them that you are an assembly or a call together group of people that's very specific and of a higher order than any other affiliation you have. You are an assembly in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I would tell you it's much the same that we discovered as we read through the book of Ephesians and taught through that a couple, uh, not too long ago. was that, that's a major point Paul is making, is that our allegiance to Jesus and to God, our, our calling ourselves a church means by necessity that we are, we are, we have a higher affiliation than any other grouping that we can come together. Not that those groupings don't exist. But there's something that supersedes all of those. But he's also doing something else. Because he's recognizing that I have Jews and Gentiles. And he's saying, I'm pulling in the Jews, but I'm also reminding you that's in Jesus Christ. He's doing more than that, right? Because now in writing, he has put down that Jesus is equal to God. Right? Remember, the Gospels don't exist yet. They're not written down. I mean, they're there. The stories are there. People are telling the stories, no question about it. But they're not written down yet. And he says, I want you to see yourself very uniquely, very differently than anything else. You're a church, you're a called out assembly, and you are you're established in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm calling them equal. This is part of his theology. But I'm also telling you exactly how it comes about. So if you're a Jew, remember that you have to bring Jesus to the table too. If you're a Gentile, remember that we're talking about the God of the Jews. Now, I'd like to, today with the time I have, to walk through just briefly at high level some major themes that I think we're going to touch on in this letter. It's not a very long letter. It's five chapters long. Here's some things I think we're going to bump up into. You're going to see some, I think, some patterns emerge. But Paul, again, is writing to a fledgling church I think the first thing or one of the things he's going to talk about is the reception of the gospel itself. What does it look like for the gospel to be received by people? What does it take for the gospel to be received? What, what, what are we talking about when we say the gospel is received? These are things, by the way, that we should wrestle with. These are things we need to care about. You know, the reality is, I don't, we could take a quick poll in here. And I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not, we can't do it. But it would be interesting to take a quick poll in here and find out how many of you are sitting here today in a church because your parents went to church. And maybe I shouldn't say that way because you probably would argue with me to say it's not because my parents went to church. But you're exposed to church, you're exposed to Jesus because you you grew up in church. I would guess that's most of us. Which tells me that it is critically listen, it is critically important that we understand what the reception of the gospel actually is. I'm serious. Because it's entirely possible for us to raise our children in the church and for them to get all the head knowledge about what Jesus has done, who God is, all those things, and not actually receive the gospel. So we need to to be concerned about what what does it mean to actually receive the gospel? The gospel has to be implanted, James uses his words. He said, you should meekly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I think we're going to see in this letter that Paul said that despite opposition, remember, how did Paul and Silas and Timothy, how did it come that they left Thessalonica? What happened? There was an uproar, right? There was people stirring things up. They were making threats. They were dragging people out in public. They were making accusations. They were threatening them. They probably laid their hands on them. They extorted money from them. They did all kinds of things. Do you think that all stopped when Paul and Silas and Timothy left? I highly doubt it. So Paul immediately also is making sure that they understand some things about how the gospel works. Despite opposition, the gospel goes forth. Now, I wanted you to stop and think for a little bit because there's also, I, I realized I did not do this on purpose, so you can't, I can't take any credit for any brilliance that I put on display here. It's not, it has nothing to do with me. But as I went back through my notes and back through the sermon and back, just sort of refining it, and actually even just as I was looking through it this morning, I realized that I came up with these themes just by reading through the book of Thessalonians several times and just letting those themes sort of come to the top. This this is sort of the order they came in. But I noticed that something is really important, actually, I think. Well, let me just get to the next point before I finish that statement. Despite opposition, the gospel takes root. Now, that's a different thing, right? Because in the first sentence, despite opposition, the gospel goes forth, has this idea that the gospel will continue spreading even when there's opposition. In the same vein, I can tell you Paul is telling to them, is writing to them that the gospel will also take root. It will, it will, it will trench down deep into the soul of our hearts if we allow it to, despite opposition. It's, it's possible. Paul addresses both of those themes in this letter. I want you to think just a little bit about which one comes first. You know, a thought hit me actually just this morning as I was sitting at my desk praying, going through this, through, through, preparing for this morning again, just walking through it again. And I think it's one of the mistakes that I make in my own discipleship with people, and I'll just speak for myself. I'm not going to speak for all the rest of you, although I will tell you, I think it's a mistake that most of us make. I see in this ordering that almost immediately Paul is, is, is positioning this fledgling church to think about the gospel moving out of them. That it's important almost immediately as they've received the gospel, that they're sharing the gospel, that the gospel is moving out. And I think a lot of times we flip that around We say, well, once the gospel goes deep and is established and you're really firm in your faith, then you should go. And I wonder if it's a bit of why we suffer as a church some. I wonder if it's one of the pieces that's missing from our true discipleship. Is that from the very outset, our positioning ought to be that when we make a disciple of Jesus Christ, that disciple is one who makes more disciples. I don't know if you understand, and I'm just going to break it, i just make it completely clear to you. I don't know if you understand, like, kind of the weight of what I just said for me, because there's lots of you sitting in this room that I've discipled. So I'm admitting to you that I probably didn't do something right. That as I discipled you, I failed in turning your positioning almost immediately to say, that's got to go through you to other people almost immediately. Because what God is doing in you needs to be talked about with people around you. I have noticed that many times, those who are fresh in their reception of the gospel are the most passionate and excited about it. And I wish I wouldn't have to say it this way, these words come out this way, but sometimes those who are the most established in the gospel are the least passionate about it. Like they could care the least that there's a whole bunch of people dying out there without knowing Jesus. And it makes me think maybe we've made a mistake in our discipleship. Despite opposition, the gospel goes forth. Despite opposition, the gospel takes root. And this is also key. It's always part of why Paul is writing letters. And I think it's going to be part of this letter that he's written to us. The result of the gospel is sanctification. If the gospel has taken root in us, if we've received it and it begins to go forth out of us and it's taking root in us, then something will change in our lives and we will become more Jesus-like. We will become more holy. We will become sanctified. That's the result of the gospel. Again, it's, it's hard and yet it's easy to work that backwards and say, if that's not true, if my life is not taking on the look of a more sanctified believer as time goes on, then I have to question whether the gospel really took root or whether the gospel's really going forth out of me as a conduit. I like the word that was used uh, this morning. As a conduit. I don't know if it was in Sunday school prayer time or if it was in sharing time. I forget exactly, but I know the word came out, and I'm a big fan of that word. Maybe the the gospel was never even received fully. Maybe that's why sanctification isn't happening. But without a doubt, when we grow in the Lord Jesus Christ, when the gospel has its effect on us, It's very clear. The teaching of the New Testament is very clear that we put off the old self. That we put off the works of darkness. And we put on the new self that's created in the image of our creator, Jesus Christ. We put on the new self and walk in light. That we begin to carry the fruit of the Spirit in us. It's what comes out of us. We begin to operate in the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us. Now I recognize... I recognize that this is not like a linear kind of thing where we just like have growth. So I don't want us to look at ourselves and be like, oh man, in the last week I haven't gone more holy, so I must be, no, 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 no. Our life takes twists and turns. It goes up and down. We nail some things and we fail some things, don't we? But overall, the thrust of our life is that we are to be growing more sanctified as time goes on, not less sanctified. We'll talk a lot about that as we go through. Let me give us one final major theme here. Because lest we think that this is a call for us to reach down and pull our bootstraps up and say, we are going to nail this thing. We are going to work this out. We are going to receive the gospel as it's meant to be received. And if, no matter what oppositions coming, we're going to soldier on. We're going to dig down deep. We're going to let the gospel do its work in us. And, and you know what? We're, we're going to power through. Paul is very clear in this letter that it's God who accomplishes all this. Make no mistake, church, it takes a willing heart. It takes a submitted will. It takes a desire on our part. It takes an entering into, but make no mistake as well, it is God through his Holy Spirit who will do these things in us, who will let the roots go down deep and will make the gospel go forth no matter what the opposition is. I know this because one of my favorite lines already from Thessalonians has come from the end of the book in chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. I, I just have the last verse up there, so I'm going to read them both. This is what Paul, this is how he ends his letter, at least pretty close to the end. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And look what he says. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The key is not to try harder, brothers and sisters. The key is to surrender more deeply, to let go, to die more surely to yourself, to humble yourself more before the Lord, to allow him repeated access into the innermost recesses of our heart and mind and thoughts and motivations, and to illuminate those things which are still not of him. Renounce them. Put them to death and walk in newness of life. It's so easy, and yet it's so hard. Maybe I should say it's so simple, and yet it's so hard. Let me get to the last line, Paul opens his last part of it. I want to get to this before we close. And he just says, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. It's what I titled my sermon. There's nothing fancy about that, but there's a tiny little phrase, a tiny little opening tucked into a letter that's full of all kinds of good things. And I'm telling you from the very beginning, if I could phrase it this way, from the very beginning, Paul comes out swinging. There's so much value and such import to this little phrase grace to you and peace that establishes Paul in his theology, in what he has to say to them, in what he's wishing for them, in what he's writing to them about, and what he sees God doing in them, and what he's praying that God will continue to do in them. Grace to you and peace. As I was sitting, I came across, this is out of the Expositor's Bible, this this quote, and I thought it was so good that I'm just going to give it to you here. Hopefully, you can read it on the screen up there. This greeting that Paul used... Grace is the love of God, spontaneous, beautiful, unearned at work in Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinful men. Peace is the effect and fruit in man of the reception of grace. You see that? Grace is God's unearned favor that Paul wants to make sure they're so aware of, and I want to make sure we're so aware of. We don't deserve any of God's favor, but I can say grace to you because God has given his grace. Grace is that beautiful word that at the very least means Jesus Christ came on the cross paying a debt he did not owe for us who owed greatly and could never have paid so that we might walk in freedom. Peace is the result of our reception of that grace. Notice this isn't an is is environment where there probably is opposition, but Paul is not aiming a low bar of the fact that he's just praying that the opposition will stop or that people will just be a little nicer to you or that maybe if they would stop pressuring them, the church could really get established. He's not, that, that's, that's way beneath where he's aiming because the peace he's talking about is the oneness or the wholeness that we have with God through Jesus Christ and the oneness or the wholeness that we have with each other. Remember, he's talking about this affiliation that's higher than every other affiliation we have. Grace to you and peace. Now, some translations will actually put that same phrase again in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, I think, how he opens the second letter to the Thessalonians with that phrase put together that way. I think it's why it got translated in some translations with it in the first one as well. To be honest, I can tell you, I don't know whether he wrote those words or not for sure. I don't know that it matters too much. He's given the phrase already. I do think it's what he intends, so it's not like it's not what he intended, right? He's going to unfold this all in this letter. But I want to make sure that as we understand Paul's theology, that this is firmly about Jesus. Remember, he's put Jesus perhaps for the first time in writing right next to God. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, his name, Christ the title Messiah, and Lord, his Lordship. And he might be thinking of the words that he's heard about Jesus, that John would so beautifully write down then. For us today, we can read them in John chapter 1, verse 16. After he talks about how all the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus, and Jesus came and walked among us, he said these words, for from his fullness, Jesus, from from his fullness we have all received, and whatever we received, grace upon grace, grace upon grace. Oh, I hope you will take a few moments this week I hope you will take a few moments this week to stop and ponder and stop every other noise, every other influence, every other thought that might be going on, every other, whatever it might be. Just pause for a moment this week and ponder the grace that you walk in, the grace that God has poured out upon you. In the fullness of God himself poured in Jesus, and Jesus walked the earth, and from him we've all received grace upon grace, rolls upon rolls, never-ending grace upon grace upon grace. And then when Jesus was walking around, do you know what Jesus said? Now, he said lots of things, and I'm going to hone in on one because of the, of, because of the salutation that Paul has given here. but Jesus himself recognized that peace is not just the absence of conflict. Because he said these words in John 14:27, "Peace I leave with you, My peace. The peace of Jesus, the wholeness, the oneness." the peace of Jesus, the fullness of God in him, the peace of Jesus, my peace I give to you. It's not as the world gives. I don't give it that way. Bit of my paraphrase, let me just read it. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled and neither let them be afraid. These kind of words were words that the Thessalonian church desperately needed to hear. Grace to you. Remember the grace in which you walk. And peace to you. Walk in that peace that passes understanding. Recognize the unity, the oneness, the wholeness that you have with God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's those kinds of words that we as a church, sitting here today in 2023, White in Michigan, desperately need to hear as well. I'm going to close with the words I read earlier because I think they're going to be words that we're going to read together a lot. Just as I did through Zephaniah, I don't know if you like this kind of stuff or you find it hokey or you find it weird or you find it unnecessary, or you find it distracting. I was going to say I don't really care what you think and I, I do, but, but I, I'm going to continue to have us read words out loud because I think it's good for us. and I think it's good for us to find the anchors that we need to hang on to. And as we read the letter to the Thessalonians, and we bump into some things that Paul wants us to know as he wrote to the Thessalonians, and God wants us to know as we read that letter, I want us to be reminded of these things. So would you read this these verses, two verses with us with me today? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I would not mind at all if by the end of this study, those were two verses that we have committed to memory that we can say at any moment, anywhere. I would not mind it at all if those verses we've committed to memory at the end of this study not only came out of us to ourselves, but came to each other in times of encouragement or times when we need encouragement. Remember, or that we'd become out as prayers for each other. May the God of peace himself sanctify. What would it feel like or look like if as we left our gathering of worship week after week, there would be ones among us who would be so bold to look each other in the eye and say, I am asking that God himself, the God of peace, would sanctify you completely and wholly, your whole spirit and soul and body, that it might be kept blameless until the day of the coming of Jesus Christ. And may I remind you, it's God who His faithfulness called you to it, and he's surely going to do it. I would also not be unhappy if you, as a body of believers, as we go through this over the next several months, if you would just make it your effort to read the letter to the Thessalonians, the first Thessalonian letter. Just read it. Not just once read it multiple times. It's only five chapters. It's not that long. I publish, I try to publish every week and hand out what the next text I'm going to be preaching from so you can spend more time with those verses if you'd like. But I think it's best for us if you do what I do, which is just to read through the letter repeatedly. Even as I'm studying and I'm getting into the text, I'm constantly going back and rereading the entire letter. So I have a feel for where the entire letter is going. It's what, I believe it's part of that that allows those digging into things to make sense or to come to the, come to the surface. And I think it's a good habit for all of us. So if you're willing to go on this journey over the next couple of months, let's, uh, let's take some time, read Thessalonians, reread it, reread it, reread it, and we'll walk through it piece by piece. Would you stand today? I'm going to just wrap my closing prayer right into the benediction, benediction prayer for you today. Father, I thank you so much for this letter. I thank you it's been preserved for us. I thank you that these words were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they not only spoke life to the Thessalonian believers way, way long ago, but they have life for us today. They're living and active. They are fitting for us. They're good for us. They, they reprove us. They correct us. They train us in righteousness. They do all those things. That's what those, these words do for us, and we want to receive them that way. And over the next number of weeks and months, Father, as we look through this letter, I pray that we would be willing to enter into what the gospel really is, how we really receive it, what it really does in us, and we would allow that gospel to have its work in us, that we might be found faithful. I thank you for the powerful, powerful words that we read together. God, you are the God of peace. You are the one who will sanctify us completely. And I pray that as we are here today in our closing prayer, I pray that we want to be sanctified completely. That's a really big issue, God. So as we are standing here today, and we're ready to walk out, we're ready to go on our way, we're ready to forget about stuff, and we're ready to move on with life, I pray we pause for a moment, and that there are those who are here this morning that are willing to look to you, they're willing to raise their hands to you if necessary, willing to, to surrender to you, go on their knees if they need to, and to say, God, I want you to sanctify me completely. I want my soul, I want my spirit, I want my body to be kept blameless for the day of Jesus Christ. And for those who have brought themselves to that place of surrender this morning. I'm so grateful that we can read these words, God, and to know that you are faithful. You're calling us to this, and you are faithful. We can trust in you. We can lean on you. We can hide ourselves in you. We can depend on you. We can cry out to you. We can, uh, we can have you turn our weaknesses into strengths. We can allow the beauty of the gospel to take what was meant for death, to be brought into triumphant victory. That's what you did through Jesus. That's what you want to do in every one of us. We... Know that you who've called us to this, you, God, are faithful, and you will do it. Thank you for this church that is committed to knowing, studying, living out your word. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.